Well, you're not like any bartender I've ever met before. And you're not like any Starfleet officer I've ever met before. But that sounds like the beginning of a very interesting friendship. I don't stay anywhere long enough to make friends. Too late. You just did. Excuse me. Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Andy, and thanks for tuning in. Today on the show, we have Sue. Hi there. And Jira. Salutations. And we are joined with a special guest, Amy. Hi, everybody. I think I first met Amy at Star Trek Las Vegas a couple years ago when we did a panel together. And she blogs about pop culture, travel, and fashion at Shoes and Starships. And she and I will be appearing on another panel on women in Star Trek Voyager at Star Trek Las Vegas. It's August. So if you're down at that convention on the Saturday, be sure to stop by our panel. I'm very excited to be doing that panel again with you guys. Yay! And also I'm doing a panel with another friend of mine, uh, Engaging Literature in Star Trek. And that is on Friday. Awesome. Of the convention. Yes. And uh, Sue and I will also be at Dragon Con doing a panel on Star Trek. So that's going to be really exciting as well. It's my first time at Dragon Con. Sue's, Sue's an expert, but I'm a newbie, so that should be fun. That's Labor Day weekend in Atlanta, so it's the very beginning of September. Women at Warp will have a panel on the Trek track. Schedules get moved around, so I don't want to say right now exactly when we're scheduled, but I'd say check your app or your program. Basically, we are spreading the message of women in Star Trek, the love for women in Star Trek from coast to almost coast, (laughs) from coast to Nevada. They consider themselves the West Coast. They have streets like Ocean View Lane. They're just waiting for California to fall into Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) So, Sue, would you like to read our first fan mail? It's from Vicky via Patreon. Dear Women at Warp crew, thanks so much for the Coffee Black show. Loved it. It really reminded me how much I love Captain Janeway and how much she influenced the early part of my career. As an introverted person moving up in the ranks of management in the corporate world, I often turn to Janeway for inspiration. My What Would Janeway Do mug sitting on my desk got me through a lot of tough situations that I would have preferred not facing. As for the folks who wrote in that Janeway was too emotional, not vulnerable enough, too masculine, too feminine, etc., I think that Janeway would not care one whit about what they thought of her, which is probably the biggest impact on me, not worrying about defining myself based on what men in the workplace think of me. I also think that many of those folks did not perhaps watch Voyager all the way through, and their opinions might be based on what they've heard about her from others. Anyway, I plan to rewatch Voyager after I get back from Las Vegas Con. I'm finishing up a rewatch of DS9 now. Thanks again for all your great work, and I hope to see you in Las Vegas. From Vicky. I can't wait to see Janeway. It's... Uh, it's the one thing that I'm so looking forward to in the future for my watching. Oh, you're going to love it. It was the best, especially being like 12 or 13 and seeing her. That's when I saw her for the first time. It was it was awesome. Yeah, and I really like Kate Mulgrew, so I, I'm just really looking forward to it. And then, then I can, you know, dive into this whole Janeway discussion with, you know, a background and actually of seeing Janeway instead of just like my impressions of her. Yeah, I do think we should clarify, though, that... Those comments, the anti-Janeway comments, if you want to call them that, were not sent in directly to us. Those are the common things that you basically find if you search the internet for people talking about her. So those, a lot of those, I think, came from what, StarTrek.com? Like the Trek BBS forums and things like that. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, but thanks so much, Vicky, for that mail. And also thanks for supporting us on Patreon. If you want to support our work, then you can head over to patreon.com slash women at warp. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash women at warp. It helps us do things like upgrade our equipment and get materials produced and share the love of women in Star Trek to more people. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about Ensign Roe. Um, which I, Yay. yeah, I think is one of the more interesting characters that we got from TNG. And I really think that people responded strongly to her one way or the other, which definitely means that she is not bland. And we actually posted on both our Facebook and our Twitter for people to write in about what they thought about the character. And I, I have to say, we got a lot of comments about her, which I think goes to show that even though Roe was only in eight episodes, people felt strongly about her. And, and both good and bad, I think, um, which is fair, and we'll talk about that. So some of the comments that we got from our Twitter were pretty straightforward. One of them was my favorite TNG character by several light years from Tim. And then a little more critical, but I think fair, which is I like her, but she walked the line of being overdeveloped compared to the main characters. And that was from Granola Girl. Megan commented that I felt they didn't develop her enough and her brashness came across as mean. They did a much better job with Kira, which I think the brashness part of it is pretty accurate that that was one thing that came across to people about her character. I do think she softened when we got a little bit further in the series and... I think when she just first came on the ship, she was right out of jail. So I think I think she might, you know, that was kind of appropriate considering she was like, you people threw me in jail, now you want a favor. Yeah, and I mean, I think her position as Starfleet is really interesting. And um, it kind of goes to the one comment that I really liked from our Facebook from Rachel that at times she seemed like a good stand-in for a cynical member of the audience questioning TNG's overly optimistic crew and exposing them to ugly realities. Those were my favorite moments with her. And I think that kind of goes to that whole brash part of her character because, I mean, they really they really do a good job of showing how her background might conflict with Starfleet. Because most of the, the main crew on TNG were very optimistic, kind of fit in with that whole idealistic side of, of things, which I think is great for Star Trek, but it's also cool to see a different side of that and, you know, have her challenge our characters to kind of define what Starfleet means to them and, you know, the the values of the Federation, basically. Yeah, I think it was a good stepping stone to the, the difference of Deep Space Nine also. Yeah, I mean, we the Bajoran-Cardassian conflict starts out being introduced in Ensign Row and then really being developed a lot further in the other series as well. Yeah, totally. And, I mean, it makes sense. The, the reason that she was brought in was basically to introduce conflict. She was introduced to contrast against the TNG main cast. Rick Berman has said the other characters in the cast are relatively homogeneous some might even say bland. So we wanted a character with the strength and dignity of a Starfleet officer, but with a troubled past, an edge. And I think we got it. Yeah, I think that's basically exactly what Roe is. Um, but it's also setting up essentially the next two series of Star Trek. Yeah, I agree. Right? You're introduced to Bajorans and the Bajoran occupation through Roe. And two seasons later, yeah, because it's in season seven, Preemptive Strike, that we're introduced really to the Maquis. And that's like the second to last episode of the entire series. Right. So you've got your the very beginning of your basis for Deep Space Nine and the very beginning of your basis for Voyager because of one character. And that's pretty impressive. That makes her, even though she's in eight episodes, she really only does something in like three or four of them. But because of what happens in her episodes, that makes her really important. 
important. Yeah, I was thinking about this with the whole eight episodes of TNG. So we do only get eight episodes with her. And yet I would say that we know more about her and have a clearer sense of her character than we did for, say, Tasha Yar in the first season altogether. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's It feels like more. Like when you said eight episodes, I was like, really? Yeah. I also thought it was more. And I looked back to watch. I was like, that's it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I actually counted them up, I was surprised because she feels like more a part of the crew than that. And it really goes to show like how, especially in the first two seasons, I would say, Troy and Yar especially got very little characterization and it just goes to show how quickly you can build a strong character with very understandable motivations and make her have an impact if you're doing it right. Mm -hmm. To the point where I guess they were going to also have her be on DS9 as basically as Kira. Yeah, I mean, obviously they thought she worked and people responded well to her. Plus that whole like freedom fighter aspect and like being born into slavery, essentially, that's very, that's very Kira, obviously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's one reason why when we talk about Ro, almost always people bring up Kira too, because they kind of filled the same role and just were executed a, a bit differently. And then obviously Kira got seven seasons and Ro got eight episodes. Mm-hmm. But we still mention them in the same breath. I also feel like Kira, it's, it's, she's very obviously not Starfleet. You know, she doesn't wear the uniform and I don't think she would ever join Starfleet. And I think they took that aspect of Ro and was, was you know, she's not really a Starfleet officer at, at heart, but she tried. <laughs> I, I would agree with that. So let's start from the beginning then and then kind of work our way through her journey and then we can kind of tackle the differences in between her and Kira later on. But so we're introduced to her in one of, I would say the best standalone episodes for women that we got in TNG, which is Ensign Row. It's, it's cool that they had a character introduction that was, I mean, they called her episode after her, after her character. I mean, it's very much an episode about this character particularly. Yeah, I don't, they very few, they very infrequently use the name of a character in an episode title. I can only think of like Date is Day or like Menage a Troy. The outrageous Okona. Yeah. Well, I want like a main character, like a Starfleet character. Q gets a couple. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like an episode about her that's set around the crew almost, which I think is really interesting and a really strong introduction to this character and probably why she made such an impact. Does anybody want to kind of give us a, a quick synopsis of Ensign Row in case people haven't seen it in a while? Well, I just wanted to mention a quick note on the makeup before we get into that, which is because oh, this was basically the first Bajoran situation. So apparently, according to a DS9 DVD feature on Michael Westmore, the makeup artist, uh, Rick Berman told Michael Westmore, we've hired a pretty girl and I want to keep her that way. Think of something that we can take and make her look a little alien and still get the idea she's from another planet, but she's still gorgeous. And this is a similar thing that happened to Dax in DS9 because they had this trill uh, makeup from TNG that was kind of like this bulbous forehead piece and they went, you know, we're like wrecking this pretty actress. So we have to make it something more feminine and they came up with the spots. So yeah, I don't have any problem with how it ended up. It's just like kind of a frustrating behind the scenes look at how, you know, even though she was this super tough character who is, you know, in many ways, like in conflict and abrasive with the main crew, it was like she still had to be hot. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that's 
a lot of the makeup decisions say, I mean, we were talking about Star Trek V and the cat woman and how she still had to look enough like a human woman that people might think she was hot. And that's just, I think that that's a pretty common sci-fi thing in general. It's like, let's not forget, she may be alien, but you still want to bang her. <laughs> As always, Jerry, your behind the scenes stuff makes me feel sad. <laughs> not always, but it's like sometimes when some of the stuff is like laid out so clearly, it just, it makes me sad. Because although Michelle Forbes is gorgeous, she's also, she's just a good actress and her character is, is so interesting. It's sad to me that, you know, they made whole decisions based on her looks rather than her character. It feels like a common problem. So going back to the episode Ensign Row, is there anybody that watched it recently that wants to give us a, a synopsis? Well, basically, Roe is busted out of jail in order to help Picard settle a Bajoran-Cardassian border dispute. And at first, she basically irks everyone. Uh, like, Riker really takes offense to her. Um, I can't remember if Jordy does in the first episode as well, but people are basically offended that, you know, they all thought it was the biggest honor of their lives to serve on the Enterprise, and she doesn't even want to be there. And she she's just like, it's better than prison. But then Guinan befriends her and is generally awesome and Guinan-y and sort of convinces Picard to give her another chance. And he ends up letting her stay on the Enterprise. Yeah, I think there's a couple things things here. It's like Jordy does react badly to her, by the way. There's there's a scene where Jordy talks about how she shouldn't be in Starfleet, basically because of her background, which the reason she's in jail is because of an away mission that went wrong and she disobeyed orders, a direct order, and, you know, most of the landing party that she was with died, and she ended up going to jail for it. And so there's that. There's this background of she doesn't follow orders, she gets people killed. Putting your life on the line in Starfleet every day, you need to be able to trust everybody around you and I think it's pretty clearly set up that in general the people in Starfleet don't trust her and part of it is because of this part of it I think is because she's kind of got this defensive brusque personality um, which doesn't endear her to people and then what you're talking about how she's not excited to be on the Enterprise and obviously she should be excited to be on the Enterprise I think that there's a little bit of pushback there and then lastly I think there is a racial element there she's Bajoran she's you know she's part of a race that has basically been marginalized and forgotten in the rest of the world um, and so I do feel like there's probably a fair amount of that as well. It's probably not specifically stated. She's discriminated against from the instant that she walks on that ship. Yeah. In the sense that Riker tells her to take her earring off. Riker, Riker in particular. Yeah. Yeah, Riker in particular is very like, what is wrong with you? Why do I have to deal with you? But that's religious persecution, essentially, because of Bajoran's earring is not only a religious statement, but it's a statement about their place in their society. And she, he, he says to her something like, you have to follow uniform code on this ship. But no, at that, this he, point, he doesn't even say it nicely. Yeah. I just watched it like two days ago. He says, he says something like, you will follow uniform regulations while on this vessel. Like, right. Very, very brusquely. Yeah. Well, when's the last time you saw Troy in an actual uniform? Or Worf. Worf can wear his baldric all the time. I know, like, it's always weird. complete ridiculousness. Yeah, and I would say that that's a pretty clear example of what I'm talking about, like her being, you know, marginalized in that way. But also, I feel like at that point, Riker is just, he's set up to be, to, to dislike her. Like, before she even transport, he's angry and resentful that Starfleet has forced her upon them. So I feel like 
and I'm sure that, you know, the, the earring thing was not cool and the way he handled it was not cool, but I'm pretty sure like it was just the first thing that he latched onto because he was resentful of the situation. That's the sense I got. Yeah, he was angry before she got there. Exactly. And they kind of reacted to each other badly right off the bat because of the situation. And he uses that as an excuse to give her an order right away to kind of cut her down, which, you know, is not cool, I would say. Yeah, it's very, I must, I must assert my authority over you. Like, I must show you that I have domination over your very basic decisions. Yes, exactly. It's like, I'm in charge here, you are not. That's, that's definitely the, uh, the vibe right off the bat. And I mean, it kind of continues. Like, she, she, her whole demeanor is not respectful in the way that they want her to be respectful, if that makes sense. Like she's, mm-hmm. yeah, they're, they're sitting in that staff meeting. Like the first thing she's like, y'all are wasting your time. <laughs> she's got her arms crossed. She's like leaning backwards. Her whole, her body language is very, yeah. I mean, you can see from like, from her head to her toes. So like she is not happy to be there. She thinks, that this mission is worthless. She doesn't trust anybody. Like all of that is being telegraphed very clearly. And I, I think it's pretty understandable that our crew would react poorly to that. But you get that, right? Oh yeah. I totally understand why. Oh yeah. This, this especially this crew, this crew is very, uh, this crew is much more by the book than a Deep Space Nine or a Voyager crew. I'm sure all of us have been in meetings though, where it's the thing you specialize in and they're not listening to you. Oh yeah. I have definitely had the row reaction in more than one real life meeting. I know this. That's why I'm here. And yet you still aren't listening to me. Yeah. And like, I I love too that because they're going so by the book from the beginning, they're like, well, let's bring this, this guy to this meeting that has diplomatic background and everything. And he's the exact wrong choice, but he's the safe choice and the obvious choice. And if Roe wasn't there, how they would have proceeded. It's, it's, it's a good example of how bringing someone with a specific background in can be so helpful. Like they know how people react and they know how that situation is going to play out. And if you're, if you are not, don't have that background, you can try and understand, but you're probably going to make mistakes. Like I don't think anybody thinks that Troy or, cause in that, that scene that we're talking about, this meeting scene where they have like basically a staff meeting about how to proceed in this mission, Crusher is the one that suggests, or like talks about this choice for um, a possible negotiator. And there were reasons for including him are very logical. They're just wrong. Yeah, they wouldn't know that because they don't have any inside information. And that's why Roe is there. Yeah. So I think I think Picard is actually a lot more willing to listen to her than everybody else on the senior staff. Yeah. And I think that's just Picard's overall style. Yeah, he likes he listens to people. He takes all of the information and then he makes his decision. But he wasn't going to listen to her before Guinan sort of convinced him. I like how it's a Guinan who really isn't a tactical uh, officer to convince. I mean, obviously, we know she is very, very intelligent and she has a you know, friendship with Picard and he trusts her implicitly. But it's funny that somebody who doesn't have knowledge of the situation or really of Starfleet tactics is the one who has to tell him, listen to this person so you can succeed in your Starfleet tactical mission. Mm -hmm. That that first meeting, though, Picard does listen to her. That's why they end up where they do and why they meet Keith Falor is because it's based on Roe's recommendation. It is later that Guinan kind of has to step in after Roe has, from Picard's perspective... Oh, she's confined to quarters. That's right. right. She could beam down to the planet without their permission to talk to someone so he confines her to quarters. Yeah, so the problem here is if you're looking at it from Picard's view, he doesn't know everything that she knows. He doesn't have the full story. 
So what he's seeing is somebody who is not listening to him and not obeying orders, which is what she got thrown in jail for. And he dismisses her after that. Um, he puts her in the quarters and that's when Guinan comes in. And I have to say, like, when we first started this podcast and we had to talk about who our favorite female characters were, this episode is basically why I chose Guinan. Like, not just this episode, but her strengths are highlighted so well in this episode, mm-hmm. which is, she sees beneath the surface and she takes the time to get to know people and she's just got this great intuition about people and her relationship with Picard, like he trusts her and I love that. Yeah. I also liked when she was talking to Ensign Rowe in 10 Forward and she's like, I don't stay anywhere long enough to make friends and Guinan's like, too late. <laughs> it's just such a Guinan thing to say. Yeah, that whole first scene is pretty great. She's like, I want to be alone. She's like, no, you don't. What? Like, if you wanted to be alone, you'd be in your quarters. You're in the middle of 10 Forward. I really appreciate the scene where Guinan takes her to talk to Picard and she, you know, she tells about her past and like seeing her father tortured by the Cardassians and says, you know, I serve Starfleet or I serve the Federation, but I am a Bajoran. And, you know, it really, it forces Picard to empathize with that situation and understand that, you know, her goal isn't to piss everyone off, but that when you are raised in a situation of racial persecution and genocide, that it it affects how you deal with everything for the rest of your life. Yeah, I mean, that's my favorite thing about Roe is her backstory makes sense. And her backstory brings things to the table from a story perspective that are very, very interesting. And that's the kind of backstory you want to write for someone to make them a complex character. They really did a good job with her falling outside of the the prescribed realm of um, next generation officers, like we mentioned earlier, just by, you know, by you saying that that's her background. I mean, she has such a very different upbringing from everybody else. And it's nice that they finally get to showcase that as like kind of a strength for her, especially in the later episodes, too. Yeah, I mean, about her overcoming, you know, the terrible things that have happened to her. I think that's a really resonant art. And I think people can really respond to that because... And she thinks differently. She thinks differently from someone with like a a Riker upbringing or a Geordie upbringing. Absolutely. We touched on it at least once before that the TNG characters, if you actually look at the main characters' backstories, there is tragedy in all of them, but it's never really explored. And it was, you know, sort of Gene Roddenberry's thing that like mental illness and, and stress over these situations wouldn't be a problem in the future. So they're glanced over you know they're talked about every now and then but they're never really taken on which is too bad because i feel like that's a really cool way to to characterize like if you take somebody who goes through something tragic like say Riker and his all of his dad issues and then have that be a part of who they are throughout the whole story that i just think is a deeper character but the way that they actually do it is like we have these extremely well-adjusted people and then for an episode they will tackle their past and then they'll move on whereas it doesn't inform like every decision they make or and it doesn't have to be every decision but you'd like to kind of see it and i think with roe we do we do see that yeah yeah the one i always think about in that sense is crusher because they talk at one point that there was some disaster on on whatever colony she was living on, but it's never specified what it was. Both her parents died. She was raised by her grandmother, got 
uh, married and then her husband died five or six years after they got married and she is raising a son alone. And none of that is ever explored in her character. Yeah. And there's so much there. It's all just kind of said and she's still this, you know, happy, caring she's doctor. She's still a super badass. Right. <laughs> and all of them have something like that. So I'm glad that that one of the tragic backstories finally informed a character. I think maybe that's because they brought Roe on very specifically. And she was designed to basically to be linked to the story in that way. It's too bad that we couldn't see that further because as we go through the rest of her episodes, sometimes she's just kind of there. But often you can kind of see why she is the way she is playing out in episodes that are not specifically about her character. No, I agree. You even that she's not specifically it's not specifically about her and Rascals either, but I think she has the most poignant child to adult back, you know, adult to child and then back again kind of, you know, I, even when I was a, a kid I thought, "Oh, how sad. She doesn't know what it's like to be a kid or to to draw, you know, mm-hmm. I think that's even that's like a great thing that even like a little kid could understand and fe- and feel for her character. Like, yeah, that. absolutely. So, do, is there anything more we want to say about Ensign Rowe the episode? I just briefly wanted to say I think that it lays down some of the groundwork for what we see in her last episode in terms of her relationship with Picard as a father figure, and that is something that I mean, it's a really interesting relationship to explore. Uh, but I think it's a little disappointing because we learn about her father in Ensign Row and we see her start to, you know, she's accepted by Picard and Picard talks about how he wants to mold her into a Starfleet officer. Um, and she awesomely is basically like, I always thought that Starfleet had a lot to learn from me. Which is such a great line. Yeah. <laughs> such a perfect line. And he's basically like, that's an attitude that makes great officers. And that's, that's really cool. And then, you know, we'll eventually see that sort of come back her respect for Picard and her, her need for a father figure. And it's, I think it's interesting that, um, you know, in Rascals, we get to see her drawing a, a picture of her mother and we never really get more than that about her mother that would have been a rich storyline to tap also to see what you know what her mother would have done in the situation that Roe was put in you know maybe as someone she could have turned to for advice yeah I mean this is one of the things that makes me wish we had gotten to see more of her just because I feel like there's a lot of potential there for larger stories and the Picard thing I do like the relationship because it's kind of this thing like where in Instant Roe she doesn't know who to trust and Guinan is the first person that she trusts and it's basically like Guinan's like you can trust him and she does and it turns out well because she's very lost in that episode. She doesn't know what to do. And I think this is the beginning of what we see with Ro with when she's feeling out of control is when she is reacting the worst. You know, like she she has lived her whole life basically not in control. And so when control is taken from her is when she gets the most angry. And I think we can see that anger in Ensign Roe and then like being able to take control of her destiny is what softens her character moving forward. I like that assessment. I think that's a very accurate way of looking at her. Well, the next episode we get with her in it is Disaster. And that's not really, I wouldn't even say that's really a character-driven episode. It's more like, so Disaster, they run into a quantum filament. I don't know, sciencing. Maybe Sue knows more about it. But the, uh, so the, basically we get all of our main characters are like split off from each other, which I think is pretty cool. And you get to see some 
characters interact with each other that you wouldn't normally see it. I'm thinking specifically of Jordy and Crusher. That was pretty cool. And also um, Keiko and Worf, which is one of my favorite scenes of Worf ever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's just, it's a cool concept and it's a really straightforward one, but it works really, really well in that the Enterprise is in danger. We've split everybody up and they're all working towards the same goal, but they can't communicate with each other. And Ro has a, a fairly large part in this episode, I would say. She is stuck on the bridge uh, with uh, Troy and Miles O'Brien and some random, I don't even remember his name. <laughs> very memorable. Yes, very memorable. And uh, it's mostly the three of them working together to, you know, take over the bridge and bring them through this dis- disaster. But Troy and Ro are in conflict, and I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I think that this is the only episode where I, I agree with the commenter about her brashness turning into meanness. I love the, like, I love Picard and the kids. I love Keiko and Worf. I love, well, sort of the Jordy and Crusher stuff, except for it's totally unrealistic that they're just like, <laughs> not quite getting sucked out into space. Oh, no, they would die. They would be dead. <laughs> they would be totally dead. Um, but I am not really a fan of the, like, Roe basically being like, no, Troy, you totally can't handle this. You're just a counselor. And, uh, I mean, it makes sense given her background, but I don't love watching it. And it feels like the episode is intended to say that Troy can't handle this. Yeah. That feels like the whole point of Ro's meanness even is so that later Troy can stand up to her. It's not about Ro, it's all about Troy. Yeah, exactly. But then at the end, you know, Ro apologizes and it's like, I was wrong and Troy's like, well, you could have been right. (laughs) And it was like, she's like, I'm the 50-50 chance I might not have done the right thing. I think that was very nice of Deanna to say, well, you could have very easily, it could have very easily have gone very badly for us. (laughs) Yeah, like, a lot of other characters would not have been that kind about it. No, they would not have been. I can't imagine Riker saying that ever. Yeah. While that's true, that doesn't excuse how you spoke to her, because she is a lieutenant commander at that point. I totally see where you're coming from, Sue, and I agree. Uh, It's just that I kind of identify with that. Um, It's not about Troy so much for me. It's like, I also have that thing where if I think I'm right and everyone else is wrong, I cannot, I cannot pretend that somebody else is right. It's like physically impossible for me. It's like I sometimes have a problem when, you know, I have, we have bosses in life, right? And if I think that someone in authority over me is making the wrong decision, it is really, really hard for me to not say anything. So I think the situation sets that up. I'm just glad that in the end, Troy takes command, you know? And, and after that episode, she she goes out of her way to, you know, advance her career. Like, she realized that she hadn't been as equipped as she wanted to be during that disaster. And now she wants to further further her training. I like that aspect of it a lot. Yeah, I think if Ro brought that out in her, then that's definitely a positive character growth. And I also, we have to throw a shout out to Miles O'Brien here because he's like, Troy is lieutenant commander. She is the senior officer. And after that, he is completely respectful of her and her position as being the authority figure on that bridge. Yeah, I think he does a great job. Even there's this cringeworthy moment where, and again, I know nothing about science, so I'm completely with Troy on this, is he's explaining to her what a quantum filament is, and I'm like, no idea. And then she says something like, so it's like a cosmic string? And he's like, no, that's a completely different phenomenon, but I don't know if it's just the way that it's acted or what, but that line could have been super patronizing. And he somehow walks the line of just being like, no, I'm sorry, that's not right, without 
treating her like she's a moron, if that makes sense. No, I agree. I think that's totally a, a good uh, characterization of that moment. He definitely does a good job there, but it is still, it still makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah the, the line itself and the way that she doesn't understand is, is cringeworthy to me. I just like the way he delivers it, and I think we have to give that to the actor rather than the writing. Agreed. But I really like that episode. I think that's a really great episode and Rose part in it. I can see the problems with it, but I think that it makes sense why she's there, which is good. At least we know that episode passes the Bechdel test because they're yelling at each other about what to do with the bridge. I rewatched four episodes and I noticed very specifically that all four passed it. That's awesome. Ensign Roe with Guinan and, and Roe and Disaster with Troy and Roe. It was very clear passes there. Preemptive strike passes pretty very well. Rascals, obviously, too, with Guinan and Roe. Mm-hmm. Next up that we were going to talk about was Conundrum. Yes. <laughs> oh, my. We actually, uh, we actually had this discussion. I was like, can we skip conundrum and pretend that it didn't happen? And Jero's like, no, no, we can't do that. I'm like, dang it. So who, who forced themselves to watch conundrum and wants to tell us about conundrum? I did. I liked it. <laughs> I mean, the, I like the episode. I don't love the Riker. I don't love the Riker. I, the Riker of it all. I'm sorry. Is there is there an Enterprise lady, a regular Enterprise lady that Riker does not bone? Yar. Yar. Is she the Crusher? only one? He does not bone Crusher. Riker's body bones Crusher in the host. Yes. You can argue about whether he was actually in control or not, but... I'm pretty sure it's only Rar. Uh, Yar. Rar. <laughs> That's how I feel about it. Rar. No, she'd, she'd be okay with being called Rar, I think. <laughs> Tell us about Conundrum, the Riker of it all. Conundrum. This is the one where they're just kind of going about their business, and then the Enterprise is being swept by, like, an energy beam or something. Yes. And they all wake up and have forgotten who they are. And there's this extra guy around. And basically, his race has this, like, psychic beam thing and is trying to convince the Enterprise to go and basically end their war for them because the Enterprise is so much better armed than, like, either of their entire societies. And one photon torpedo will end the war and destroy this planet and they have wiped the computer banks too so they can't get all the information about who they are so they think that this guy this kieran is it oh it's mcduff right yeah kieran mcduff yeah. boring mcduff that's what i call him no boring mcduff <laughs> mcduff is such a shakespeare thing that is such a macbeth thing though because mcduff is like i i was thinking like is this a macbeth reference is this yet another shakespeare reference having been doing my my studying for my panel it is hilarious yeah but it also reminds me of macguffin which is like the, the faux plot you know just the macguffin yeah. of the plot so so but picard um is his even though he doesn't remember everything his like morality takes over because he's like these people are unarmed or our, our capabilities are nothing near uh, you know equivalent with them so he refuses to to destroy this planet this outpost that mcduff is trying to convince him is his mortal enemy and i would say that that's a pretty good troy episode in the fact that she is the first one that brings this up she was like if you know, so many lives depend on this. We need to wait until we have all of the information. 
She's the one that doesn't quite trust the situation, which I like. Doesn't she say they should call Starfleet Command? Because I think that's a good call. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the very first scene is Troy beating Data at chess. And she says that basically um, logic isn't everything. You need intuition as well. And so that's kind of the theme that it goes through with her is she has this intuition that something isn't right. And she's passionately arguing for the lives of the sort of defenseless aliens that Macduff's trying to make them attack. Because inexplicably, he decided to masquerade as the first officer instead of the captain. <laughs> I think it would have been. <laughs> we just we just uncovered the whole entire problem with his plan. <laughs> I never thought about that, but you're absolutely right. That's ludicrous. <laughs> but the reason that we're talking about this episode is that Riker and Ro, because they don't remember that they hate each other, decide to sleep together. And I understand that a couple of you maybe not so much fans of that. The thing I don't like about Riker Ro is that they they make it feel like that whole love hate rom com trope. Like the reason that they're arguing is just because of this sexual tension, and I just don't buy that at all. They're in very very understandable conflict, you know. So I rewatched this yesterday, and I actually had zero problem with it because I didn't really see it as a love triangle so much as that Deanna and Will were like had a possible love relationship, but Deanna through this whole thing is very like I don't have all the information. I'm going to be super cautious. Ro seems to really just want sex. And she's really the one in the driver's seat for this thing. So it doesn't feel to me like, you know, Riker's always just wanted to bone her. And but it's like that now that she doesn't have this baggage of her past, she's still like really aggressive, but she's more fun loving and pleasure seeking. And we almost never see women on TNG seek sexual pleasure who don't end up being the villains or don't end up getting punished for it at the end, like Troy after all of her horrible boyfriends. So I thought it was like refreshing to see Ro being like, this is what I want. You're consenting as well. Let's go for it. And like they, there was no promises. There was no like, we're going to be, well, I mean, she does say like, maybe we're going to be married and or we would be married. But I didn't get the sense that this was about them wanting to have a long-term love relationship. Um, so I actually, it didn't bother me really at all. I didn't think that, like, I thought, like, everyone knew what the risks were. And then at the end, Riker gets to be super, super awkward and uncomfortable. And that was pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, I, I do like that it's definitely Ro that is the aggressor, the, like, the sexual aggressor. And that was awesome to see is, like, she just kind of shows up at his, she shows up in his quarters and is like, hey. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> I like it. Um, yeah. I have no problem with the, if they wanted to explore that. And I think, Jared, you make an excellent point. I think where it got weird for me is that they then brought Troy into it. And like Riker knew about this, this possible love relationship. But by the time that he then saw Ro again, like he had spoken to Troy about this and then he immediately went to Ro, presumably to have more sex. And that's where I'm a little like, Riker can be a little bit of a jerk. <laughs> well, Ro actually barges in on Troy and Riker as they're about to kiss. And Troy's like, nothing's going on here. I'm going to leave. So she like, Troy actually kind of leaves the situation. So I don't know. I don't know that it's really reasonable to say like Riker should have held off just in case him and Troy were married in the uh, 
other world or whatever. I mean, like, Troy didn't have to be like, nothing's happening, I'm leaving. I'm just thinking about it right now. I think it might have been that kind of an analogy for Riker and Troy's, like, whole relationship. Like, should we do this? We're not sure. Well, I don't know. It's a lot of thinking. Whereas him and Roe was just... We think, I think you're hot and I think you're hot, so let's get it on. Yeah. I do think it is problematic, like at the very end where Roe and Troy are saying, like you said, that, so Roe is like, oh, well, the counselor was just telling me that, you know, sometimes people, in these situations do what they've always wanted to do. So like implying that they've subconsciously wanted to have sex for a long time. And that's problematic, but the way that they do it, it almost seems like they're just messing with him. So I don't know, in my head, I'm just like, they're just messing with him. That's not a thing. Um, And it lets us go on without, you know, seeing Ro as like someone who's, repress in conflict with Riker because she secretly wants him. Yeah, that was the only thing that I didn't like about the idea is just like, of course, that's not why they're in conflict. They're in conflict for understandable reasons. Anything else to say about Conundrum? I think it's a it's a good episode. I like it. I, I just think Macduff is super boring and that plot doesn't like work for me, but that's not Ensign Row related. <laughs> like you didn't make yourself the captain. There's all these, like you couldn't destroy these people that are totally defenseless. And yet you had the ability to like wipe the minds and change the computer files of the flagship of the Federation. But I like too anyway. that they actually legitimately say that. Like, they bring that up. They're like, why do they have this technology but not photon torpedoes? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Make some torpedoes. Don't bring us into it. <laughs> it does make it a bit better. Okay, well, the next one that we have on our list to discuss is Power Play. Oh, I love that episode. I do too, but I don't have a lot to say about Ro. Yeah, the next two that Ro's in, Power Play and Cause and Effect, she's in them, but she's just kind of there. I don't think there's much that, that comes out of her character in either of those episodes. I have a really funny quote from Michelle Forbes when she got the script for Cause and Effect, which is the one where they're in the temporal loop. It said, they sent me the script and I thought the Xerox machine had screwed up. I was just about to say, look, there's a problem with the script, she remembers. Like, thank God I realized that was the whole show before I went and embarrassed myself. Understandable, though. <laughs> and then, so Power Play, Cause and Effect, the next phase... Yeah, I just watched this one as well. I had a quote from Michelle Forbes um, saying, when they asked me to return as Roe for the next phase, so I guess this is about halfway through her run, um, I said I had no interest in playing this character if she was going to be homogenized, if she was going to go from people thinking she was too outspoken to being turned into a soft-bellied piece of jello. The fans always said we love how true to herself she is. Some people told me at conventions they thought she was becoming too soft, but I guess it's a natural progression. That episode forced her to ask questions about why we're here, how much we miss out in life, life, what would happen if it were all taken away tomorrow? It was an interesting way to soften her up, not in a needless way, but in a growth way. I agree. I think that's true. Yeah, that's the one where her and Jordy are um, like out of phase with the rest of the crew after a transporter accident, and they have to find a way to become visible to warn everyone about a Romulan plot. Yeah, and I like that episode too, and I think it's cool to have Jordy and her have, I mean, he has a very specific line that she basically doesn't even belong in Starfleet. So it's cool to kind of throw them together and have him change his mind. Yeah. Yeah. And she basically thinks they're dead. And so it causes this a bit of a crisis um, of, you know, what do you believe about the afterlife? Uh, but also at the end, they're sitting in 10 forward and she says that she feels like she's been kind of arrogant 
And I, I kind of mixed feelings about Jordy has a line, you know, well, we should develop our own one of these phase devices, because if it can teach Roller and humility, it can do anything. And she laughs like at it. And she sort of acknowledges like, I think I know better than other people. I, I cringed a little bit because I'm like, I can't imagine ever saying that to someone who had been what she had been through. But it is an aspect of her character. Yeah, they share a moment. I guess it was like an incisive comment. It wasn't meanly intended. No, I feel like he's just like, you know, teasing. Yeah, I don't think he would say that to her without... His delivery, a- his delivery does not sound, his delivery did not sound nasty. No, exactly. It was more like... Inside joke. Yeah, I guess she's, she's acknowledging, yeah, something that other people have probably thought but have been too afraid to talk to her about. I like that they developed that a little more and as kind of, you know, science shenanigans go, I think it's a, a stronger setup than a lot of the TNG episodes. Um, next up on our list to talk about is Rascals, which is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite episodes. Yay. And I know that I am not alone in that, but like, I, I know that there are people who do not love it as much as I do. I am one of those people who doesn't really like this episode. I, I know. <laughs> I, I was actually thinking of you specifically, Sue, because one of the first times Sue and I went on a podcast together was for All Things Trek, and we had to choose our favorite episodes for each season. And my season six pick was Rascals. <laughs> and I had to explain why I loved it so much. And Sue was like, okay. Mm, <laughs> no, I, I'm on your side. I really like this episode as well. Well, I'm glad I'm not totally alone. No, I think I'm the one that's alone in general. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I know I know people who hate this episode as well. I am not really a fan of kids, but I really love Kid Picard. He totally makes this episode for me and the part about he's like so hilarious. he's my number one dad. <laughs> it's my favorite moment. And that that hug where uh, that's like my when Riker smiles like that, I can't help but laugh. Like that, that huge cheesy smile and like that twinkle and then they're like so being so weird <laughs> and that Frankie is just like okay <laughs> those are pretty much the only redeeming scenes for me of that episode. <laughs> no i love this episode right from the beginning because right from the beginning picard is in this shuttle and he's just like geeking out about archaeology and i just think it's so adorable um and the the other three uh especially Guinan and Ro are like giving each other these looks like oh Look what a nerd. And I just think it's so adorable. Well, we should say, I'm pretty sure everyone knows which one Rascals is. It's kind of an infamous episode. But Ro, Keiko, Picard, and Guinan are coming back on a shuttle, and they run into weird energy. And then when they're transported onto the Enterprise, they're transported as, I would say, probably about 12, 12 years old versions of yeah, themselves. a little around there. And I think it's adorable. Others might not think so. That's totally cool. But in regards to Ro, it, I think it, it's a, it's a good episode for her and for her characterization. Yeah, I agree. I, there are parts of the episode I think are problematic, but they're not Ro related. So I'll leave them for another day. But I, um, I do like the Ro and stuff. The whole thing about how you know, crayons can take you out anywhere you want to go or whatever Guinan's quote is. And I think the actors uh, are really great. I just wish they had left Alexander out of the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, he's he's, a, he's so much younger than they like than they are like I think as a kid. But even the like actors who played the kids, he seemed a lot less mature and like able to handle the the subject matter than they did. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like part of that episode is about how we dismiss children. 
Like we have this the whole scene where Picard is trying to get the child's computer to give him the schematics of the Enterprise and they'll only give him like, <laughs> Would you like to see pictures of plants? And he's like, No, no, I don't. Um and then like Alexander like the way the Ferengi leave the kids to basically be by themselves because they don't think they could possibly you know, do anything. I do think that's a part of the episode and why it's necessary to have an actual kid involved. Yeah, that's true. I think just Alexander is so <laughs> meh, but I've always liked Alexander, but not because of his character so much as every time I'm like, tiny Klingon. Oh my God. But I don't think you're alone in disliking his character. I will, I will give you that. The, the kids they cast for this episode were really good, especially, especially Guinan. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the young Guinan is actually also the child version of Whoopi Goldberg for Sister Act. Oh, I didn't know that. I, I don't know if you guys are like me and loving Sister Act, but they're, the beginning of Sister Act is that same actress. I'm afraid I don't know her name, but she's uh, doing the opening scene where she's like, can you name the apostles? The apostles, John Paul Torshin and, and Ringo. <laughs> and she puts Ringo on and underlines it, and then it cuts to, you know, modern day whatever her name is. Dolores. Sister Mary Clarence. I don't remember her real name. Yeah. Dolores. 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 Yeah, because that's what I was thinking. It was like the first thing I was like, Sister Mary Clarence, obviously, but that's not her real name. So anyway. I like this fun fact. Yeah. I mean, I just think that's funny. And it looks like her and she she's good. She kind of nails that whole Zen wise, but also joyful aspect of Guinan, which I think is important specifically because that's basically what she's trying to get Ro to see. The joy of being a child, which has been taken from Ro in the most brutal way. I think it's very understandable that she would have such complicated feelings towards her childhood. I think they definitely portrayed that accurately. And the, the actress, the little little girl is like, childhood was made of suffering and I wanted it to be over as soon as possible. Oh, <laughs> and it's, it's so you, sad. You're, you're, you think so sad, you know, you just get so you like, you like look at her little face and you're like, oh, yeah. And just the idea of. Ro not being able to, I mean, we've talked a little bit about how she feels about control. When she was a kid, she had no control whatsoever. So you can kind of see like where that comes from. Um, and I like that they give her the moment to, at the end, to be vulnerable and be like, well, maybe I want this feeling a little more, this feeling of innocent and a kid and not have terrible things being happening to me. I can jump on the bed and draw pictures. I just, I think it's really sweet and really sad. Yeah, I think it was a good episode. I think she was a good choice to go through the transporter and have that moment. You know, they could have done anybody, really. Well, the next episode we're going to talk about is Preemptive Strike, which uh, I think, Jerry, you're right that this is kind of like the bookend. Ensign Row and Preemptive Strike kind of go together really well. And it's her last episode and the last time we see her. Does anybody want to give us a synopsis? I can give a synopsis. I just watched it last night. It's about the Maquis. There is a Maquis attack against a Cardassian vessel along the demilitarized zone. And the Enterprise is shocked to realize that they're Federation ships, but they are not run by Starfleet officers. They're run by the Maquis. And Ensign Rowe comes back from a tactical training, uh, like, well, not a seminar, I guess more like a course that she took. And Picard's like, oh, half of the people who enter this tactical course wash out. So it's really awesome that you completed it. And he congratulates her. And then they jump right into putting her on a mission to infiltrate the Maquis and kind of gain their trust in order to betray them to Starfleet. And he's like, are you okay with this? And she's like, I can do it. I'm going to prove you right. I'm going to make sure that your faith in me is not misplaced. But... 
uh, as with Ensign Rowe, it's really hard for her to see fellow Bajorans that have been displaced for so long and are fighting for their home and for their culture. So she ultimately decides to join the Maquis. Part of that is that she meets another father figure who yes, is... Masius. Is he Bajoran as well, or does he just make Bajoran food? I don't think he's Bajoran. I think he's human. But he had a friend who was Bajoran who would cook, yeah. who would cook, for, uh, cook for him, and he really likes this one particular dish that... Rose said she Hasperat, yeah, that she knows how to make, and he said, "Oh, I really would love for you to make it for me sometime," and she agrees. Yeah, and then he is killed. So part of that is her feeling that she can't betray his memory, especially when his dying breath. He says, "When when an old leader like me dies, a new one will take their place." <laughs> and you're like, "Oh, little no. on the nose there, Mister." Right as he dies, he says it. Oh. She also meets um, another woman in the resistance. And she she sort of has to earn her trust. Yeah, I think she has a great moment when she's on the shuttlecraft. They're trying; she's trying to prove her worth, and she's able to quote get past the Enterprise uh, shields and sensors and beam up some medical supplies. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a good moment because the Picard obviously lets it happen because he realizes she is probably part of her mission. Mm-hmm. And, but also, just the woman is really impressed with her, and she goes back to tell the Maquis, "Oh, and then she did this, and we were right inside their shields, and it was crazy." Yeah, and it bookends things with Riker, too, because Riker gets disguised as a Bajoran to go on this mission with her at the end, and she ends up basically pulling a phaser on him and telling him she's going to go join the Maquis. Yeah, I like that, because he, he didn't even really try to stop her. He was like, good luck, and I, I, you know, like, I wish you the best and all that. Take care of yourself, that kind of thing. And I think it makes a lot of sense for her. Bajor was not, and I think maybe still is not, I'm not positive on that, a member of the Federation. So you get the impression from Ro that she joined Starfleet and she would have had to have a sponsor to join Starfleet since Bajor wasn't a member world, they were occupied, to to essentially, because she wants to do something good and she wants to help. But the the Federation is not working for the interests of her people. So when she finds a group that is, and, and she's sympathetic to their plight, and she wants to to fight really for for what has been oppressing her for so long. It makes a lot of sense for her character. And I think that, you know, the the crew of the Enterprise, who at this point knows her really well, can see that and is not going to stop her. Yeah, and then, you know, the last thing that we learn, Riker goes back and, and says that she seemed very sure she was making the right choice. I think her only real regret was that she let you down, uh, meaning Picard. I don't know. I found that, I mean, I guess they're saying that she only had one regret. So I guess that's good. I see what you're saying. And I think that she she really did want to do right by Picard, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And I don't think there's anything wrong with her, like having this traumatic childhood and looking for a figure, whether it be a man or a woman or whatever gender, to be someone who would, you know, have faith in her and encourage her to succeed. I just, like I said, I guess I kind of wish that there had been more exploration of of like of mother figures as well. Yeah, the mother figure thing again, you know, when she was drawing a picture of her mom or whatever, that that kind of, you know, I think that's part of the she just seemed to really crave the father figure more. Yeah. I mean, I think if we had more women characters on Star Trek and in TV more generally, it wouldn't even be a thing. Like, it's not like there's a negative associated with like the, you know, desire to have parental figures, but we just um, you know, Roe was really the first, um, I guess, I mean, we had Yar, but like we said, Yar wasn't really very well defined. Um, and, and so she was really the first, like, 
tough uh, woman who really, you know, made it known what she wanted. So it, it felt a bit like it was, I don't know, tempering that by having her want to defer to a male authority figure. I see your point, yeah. I wouldn't say defer. I think maybe more. She doesn't seem like she would be up for deferring to anybody. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, it, it, it's more just, I think, pressure on her to embody a lot of things because there weren't a lot of women characters that were tough in the same way as her and complex and interesting. No, I know. She definitely stands alone uh, in the next generation world, at least. Because I was going to say that uh, we were going to talk a- just a little bit about Roe versus Kira. And that's one thing that makes them distinct is partly because we got seven seasons of Kira that we did get to see her connections with like friends in the resistance, but also people who sort of act as father figures, as well as her actually, um, you know, meeting her own mother. And uh, that is really interesting. We won't spoil it too much for Andy. But uh, <laughs> I think that's that's one benefit that we got from having more time with Kira. Yeah, I feel like they really used Roe as a test for Kira to see how people would have responded. Well, did we already talk about how she was basically offered that role? Uh, we did a little bit that, you know, basically they wanted to have Roe and they actually started drafting the Bible, the character Bible with Roe as the character to be played by Michelle Forbes. But Michelle Forbes wasn't interested in a regular series. And uh, so they they changed it a little bit and uh, we ended up with, with Kira. I, I said previously on on the podcast that I felt like Roe sometimes got a little whiny teenager. Um, but I do still like the character in a lot of ways. But that is why I'm glad that it's a different character because Kira's a little bit older. And I think at least by the time she gets to DS9, yeah, she's still angry, but I feel like she's a little bit well adjusted. So for a regular yeah. character, I think she definitely works better than Roe would have in that situation. Well, and she's in a situation where she's she's an outsider to the Federation like Roe, but she also has, you know, she has some people that she trusts like Odo right from the get-go. Um, so it positions her a little bit differently where she's not really oppositional to everyone. She is you know, constantly balancing her loyalties to her government, to her religion, to her friends, to the Federation, and um, all of that around her upbringing um, about being a Bajoran and being uh, raised in uh, resistance and oppression and war. I think the reason that that Roe is so successful as a character is that, you know, she's very like Kira, and I have read a lot of um, scholarship on the women of Star Trek, and if you analyze them in terms of who has the greatest feminist agency out of all the characters, um, even more so than Janeway, uh, Kira has the most feminist agency because she has the ability to have relationships and she's like she's not constrained by Starfleet necessarily the way Janeway kind of was. Mm-hmm. Kira is just like she's the she's like the top character for women in Star Trek and the fact that Ro is her actual predecessor and she was originally written as Ro is really encouraging and really speaks to the way Ro was originally written. Yeah. 
I think that makes sense. If for people who are interested in the novels, the uh, there's a Terok Nor trilogy that's a prequel that goes through the uh, Cardassian occupation of Bajor, and there's a lot of really interesting stuff to read on Young Ro and Young Kira in the Resistance, and they they don't interact with each other, but you get to see Ro like falling in love for the first time and like how that works out during wartime and uh, developing sort of her her identity as a fighter. And uh, so I, I would recommend that trilogy of novels. Oh, cool. I have to read it. Yeah, and there are a few set afterwards that have Ro eventually returning to Deep Space Nine. <laughs> In fancy rules. <laughs> In fancy rules. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, she gets those promotions that she was, uh, that Picard was encouraging her to try for. That's good. Yeah. Is there anything else anybody wants to add to the wrap up? I would just like to say thank you for having me on the show today, and I really enjoyed it. <laughs> yes, thanks, Amy, so much for joining us. It was a great discussion. So, Amy, where can people find you elsewhere on the internet? So you guys can all find me on shoesandstarships.com, and also my Twitter handle is at lightstar1013, and you can also find me on Pinterest and Tumblr also with um, lightstar1013 and shoes and starships. I'll definitely have to follow you on Pinterest then. I love my Pinterest. <laughs> I, I have a geek. I have a geek love board that I think is uh, very popular. I get a lot of followers on that one. So that's awesome. And Jara, where can people find you? You can find me at trekkiefeminist.tumblr.com. And Sue, my Twitter handle is spelltor s p a l t o r. Or you can find more blogs and podcasts over at anomalypodcast.com. And I'm Andy. Easiest way to find me is on my Twitter at first time trek, where I am live tweeting my first time through Star Trek. I currently am almost finished with the first season of Deep Space Nine, so hopefully I'll have a lot more to say about Kira soon. Thanks for listening. 